0: Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is editor Chris Clow to talk about the effects of racist housing policies on Seattle residents, the number of people helped by the Homeowners Assistance Fund, And what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is up to these days.
1: We may have just gotten back from Gathering of Eagles, but we're not done with events for 2023 yet. This October, we're headed right back to Austin, Texas for Housing Wire Annual, and we want to see you there. We've got a power-packed agenda with content such as our Women of Influence speakers, peak performer playbooks, CEO playbooks, and more to propel your company forward, as well as a bunch of networking events. Because this event is open to real estate executives, mortgage title, and everyone in between, you really have the opportunity to network with people from all across the housing ecosystem. If you want to learn more about the event, or if you're already ready to get registered, head over to housingwire.com on the events tab and you can learn all about it. Not to mention, if you're an HW Plus member, you're going to get 50% off your ticket. So get registered for HW Plus and get registered for the event so we can see you out in Austin.
0: Chris, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Thanks very much for having me back, Sarah.
0: Great to have you back. Uh, We have some really interesting stories to talk about today. The first one I wanted to talk about was one you wrote about your um, city, Seattle. You are in the Seattle area and the findings that uh, residents lost tens of billions in wealth due to racist housing policies. So would really like to dive into that and tell us about that report.
2: Sure. So um, I, I try to keep an eye on as many different news outlets as I can, including my my own local ones. And there have been a couple of instances where it's almost sort of turned me into Housing Wire Seattle Bureau chief, where I just kind of examine what the, what the housing trends are in the area. And this was a report that was commissioned by King County, which is the county that Seattle resides in. Uh, It was reported by the Seattle Times, a consulting firm called Eco Northwest found that uh, rather large totals of wealth uh, were lost specifically among uh, populations of color in King County, uh, which includes Seattle. And a lot of that was attributable to our uh, policies that are racially discriminatory, practices that included redlining, um, but also money that went to rent payments that didn't actually help to establish the growth of a household's wealth. You know, we always hear, especially recently, since, um, you know, tackling equality is such a concern of the Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Biden administration at large, that uh, a lot of intergenerational wealth is built in the in homeownership. So uh, it was assessed sort of on that basis when specifically looking at the black households that uh, have lived in King County, uh, the estimated intergenerational wealth loss since 1950 was estimated to be between either five, between 5.4 $5. and $15.8 billion. And that also included a rundown of some of the policies that the report uh, has identified as racist. Um, and the thing that i found particularly interesting is that, the assessment of the policies and practice actually go back decades before Washington was even a state. Uh, Going back to 1855, uh, Washington wasn't actually uh, admitted to the union as a state until 1889. So back in 1855, uh, the report detailed that Washington's first territorial governor compelled indigenous tribes in the area to cede their lands and move to reservations and that also, you know, absolutely counts in terms of a, a policy that likely impacted the ability for Native Americans in particular to generate wealth generationally over time. So it was a very broad report in terms of what it identified and uh, and some of the issues that uh, that. The state has been aiming to address. Back in May, I wrote a story about how uh, Governor Jay Inslee had written a slew of housing bills into law. And one of them is intended to help people who were affected by racist housing covenants uh, designed to keep ethnic and religious minorities out of certain neighborhoods, as well as their descendants with down payments and closing costs. So that's one of the ways that uh, that the state government is aiming to uh, sort of address these long standing issues. But one of the th- other things that I found interesting is that federal policies were also identified. It's not just policies that were at the state, county, and local levels. Uh, and that goes back to the 1934 establishment of the Federal Housing Administration itself, which the report says, quote, incentivize communities to embrace single family zoning and racial deed restrictions to be considered for mortgage insurance feeding into the practice of redlining. And that's according to a summary of the report that was distributed to, uh, to leadership at King County. So it's very broad based, but detail oriented.
0: It is. And I think it's so interesting that a county took it upon itself to do this, right? I mean, I I thought this was going to be some outside, you know, um, agency that was like, let's look at what happened. But the county is like, "What what is it that this county has done? Or what are citizens in this county who are who are black, who have been distrib- discriminated against, like what have they lost in terms of wealth? I think it's an incredible thing to do, to look at that and be able to pin down the numbers. It is difficult. They said there's such a wide range there because they're looking at, you know, um, it depends on how you, uh, you know, do you want to say that wealth could have been put into the S&P 500, you know, different inflation things. So I think that's why there's a big disparity there. But clearly, um, if you were shut out of home ownership, and Seattle at some point, it's almost impossible to get in there now.
2: Yeah. I mean, we've talked before on this show, just about how home prices in this area are still very high, even though they've moderated slightly over the past year or so, they are nowhere near where they were in 2017 or 2018, for instance. Um, But I thought that the report kind of uh, funneled everything into a, a pretty core thesis when it said, quote, discriminatory practices and policies in government, the banking and real estate industries continue to impede access for home ownership for black, indigenous, people of color households today. These discriminatory practices negatively affect credit scores, mortgage access, and the general financial security of BIPOC households, such that obtaining home ownership has been and continues to be a significant and unacceptable hurdle, end quote. And uh, obtaining home ownership in ideal circumstances in this area, as you just alluded to, is already uh, a pretty difficult task for for a lot of people. You know that we've seen uh, parts of the state uh, really ramp up their construction, uh, really in multifamily housing. I mean, I see single family homes being constructed as well, but just anecdotally speaking, if I wanted to drive up the street, I can probably see four or five different uh, multifamily units being constructed just within maybe like 10 minutes of, of my apartment. So there's definitely an effort that uh, that the state is, is taking on to try and house more people. We're still at a bit of a shortfall like a lot of other areas are. But housing is definitely a priority of the state government in addition to being a priority of the federal government as we report regularly on Housing Wire.
0: Do you think that, um, uh, first of all, your your anecdotal um, evidence tracks with what we see in the data, which is most of the building being done is multifamily versus single family, um, obviously a need for both. Um, but d- did the county say why they wanted this? Like, wh- are they doing this as a precursor then to taking some actions there or to reparations or like, why would you do this unless there was some, uh, you know, secondary thing you were going to do?
2: They didn't specifically mention in this report why they had commissioned the study to be done. But if I went back a little bit further, I'm sure I could actually find the specific reason that they decided to institute this. But I would imagine that some of this just has to do with the, the population growth that the state has seen. And the The state tends to sort of follow in the footsteps of King County as the most populous county with the Seattle area. and you know a lot of major companies are based uh, in in the Seattle region. you know you have Amazon, you have Microsoft and and those bigger companies that tend to bring a lot of people in uh, to to facilitate those jobs. But Washington's population uh, based on data from the u s Census Bureau pretty recently, uh, it added more than 45,000 people between July of 2021 and 2022. And that makes it a, a pretty uh, big growth engine in terms of uh, just general population. You know, we're not anywhere near Texas, for instance, or Florida. But um, considering how many people are coming here, I think naturally that brings more diverse residents here as well. So uh, there's a need that I think ripples through to political representation about addressing these shortcomings that have been seen uh, and that are attributable to these kinds of policies that have been in place for a long time. And I think the nation at large is sort of trying to figure out a path forward considering some of the the history involved
0: here. Agreed. And kudos to Kings County for taking it, um, you know, proactive action to find out you know what exactly is the extent of this um and hopefully we'll see like you said that could you know precipitate state action since they are the um you know the population center so we will see we'll keep an eye on that i i appreciate you uh letting us know and, and as far as like you're not texas well it's 105 in texas today and uh, so <laughs> you know you probably probably be glad that you're you know not in texas uh it's crazy.
2: Yeah, right now outside, I'm reading 61. So it's a little uh, oh, little less my intense. God. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that is crazy. Um, the other story I wanted to talk to you about it uh, is sort of along that same, like, how are we helping people stay in homes? And that's about the Homeowners Assistance Fund. Tell us um, what they found um, now that that uh, – I think that program was, you know, for the COVID area. Tell us what they found.
2: Yeah, so uh just as a as a slightly brief recap, the Homeowner's Assistance Fund was part of the American Rescue Plan Act which was passed by uh Congress shortly after President Biden came into office in early 2021. Uh it is a program where 10 billion dollars was set aside to try and alleviate uh some financial strain on people who were negatively impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. So there are a variety of reasons that someone might be able to uh, receive half funds, usually to cure foreclosures or other outstanding housing related costs that they have not been able to address because of some sort of financial impact from the pandemic. But there was a report that was released by the U.S. Department of the Treasury, which is one of the implementing authorities for the half fund. And they said as of March 31st, half programs have made roughly $3.7 billion in payments to more than 318,000 homeowners at risk of foreclosure. In the first quarter of 2023 alone, half programs distributed $1.2 billion in assistance to households, a 50% increase over the fourth quarter of 2022, demonstrating the program is continuing to scale rapidly as designed. That was a statement from the Department of the Treasury. So this is also something that kind of dovetails with my coverage of the reverse mortgage industry. Um, I had an opportunity in early 2021, uh, right around the time that the American Rescue Plan Act was passed to speak with some HUD officials about its implementation and potential applicability to reverse mortgage borrowers. And they said, yes, reverse mortgage borrowers can qualify because uh, one of the key um, metrics of a reverse mortgage borrower that they have to maintain is property taxes, homeowners insurance, and HOA fees if they're applicable. Uh, And if a borrower a reverse mortgage borrower was negatively impacted by the pandemic to the point where they could not make those payments, then they could request assistance through the half fund. So uh, this is a program that seems to have had some struggles in getting off the ground, and it seems like it's mostly uh, an awareness problem. Uh, We reported both on Housing Wire and on Reverse Mortgage Daily about the difficulty that uh, servicers in particular have with informing borrowers about this option that is available to them. And it's, it's created a, a, a bit of an issue. Uh, there have also been specific instances on the reverse side in particular where certain states do not allow reverse mortgage borrowers to participate, even though other states do. But more states have recently added reverse mortgage borrowers uh, to the program's eligibility list, including Hawaii, for instance, that was a pretty recent development. Um, so the fact that the half fund is, uh, they say scaling as intended and that it's impacted over 300,000 people and potentially help them to stay in their homes by, uh, addressing a potential foreclosure concern. That's, it's a pretty, pretty widespread program, I think.
0: I agree, especially um, what they found was that almost 50%, I think 49% of the people who had accessed these funds were, were classed as very low income, which meant that they had they made less than 50% of the median income, which we know that even if you have a median income in an area, you may not be able to afford housing that area. So the fact that they earned half of the median income shows kind of where they are. And and this program, there was money allocated to it. I think it's $10 billion to, and, and that's, you know, divided by state. So the states can continue to um, give this money out, even though obviously we're past some of those pandemic uh, uh, era woes, they still have that money and they still can use it uh, and deploy it for these uh, low, lower income borrowers, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, it's, it, I, I don't think it's being exhausted as quickly as, as, um, sort of the framers of the program and in, intended it to be. Uh, I talked with reverse mortgage servicing professionals, uh, a lot over the past year about how the half program is progressing on the reverse side. And they continue to say, people don't know about it, you know, in, in spite of the fact that we send mailers, we tell uh, reverse mortgage originators who have, in some cases, direct relationships with those borrowers to inform them that this is an option for them. It still has difficulty getting off the ground in that respect. And we hear pretty similar stories on the forward side as well, where it's just, it's it's awareness. They don't know that this is a resource they can tap if the pandemic uh, negatively impacted them financially. So that just goes to show how important those lines of communication are granted the reverse side tends to have more challenges when it comes to informing borrowers of certain things just because if if a servicer sends a letter to a reverse mortgage borrower for instance uh that borrower since they're an older person might be conditioned to look at any correspondence that comes having to do with their home with a highly uh, scrutinizing eye because seniors are so often the targets of scams and other illegitimate actors that try to take advantage of them. So even if it's a legitimate communication, they may not think that it's something that they can, uh, it, it's, it looks too good to be true. And the half fun kind of does, but it is very real. And, uh, and the treasury is absolutely making that very clear that this is something that continues to be available to people. Uh, and you know, three point seven billion dollars in payments—that's quite a long way from ten billion. So it seems like there's uh, there's quite a lot left to go.
0: It's a great point. And those three hundred thousand people that have been helped—I mean, we have some of the lowest foreclosure rates ever. And of course, there was a, a big you know stink when it's like, oh, foreclosure rates doubled or whatever the the the. Latest thing is, but it's like that's because it was almost zero. I mean, it's it's a very low foreclosure period, and this is one of the reasons is that you have people who um, have had economic trouble who are being helped through this program. Three hundred thousand people is not um, is not a small number. Although, as you said, I mean, we're we're not even we've got lots more to go when it comes to um, this fund. So. Great reporting on that. Love to hear that. Um, let's switch a little bit now to um, some news that I found really interesting about the CFPB filing an amicus brief in in Maine um, in a case involving a married couple's loan, and it and it really concerns TILA, which is the Truth in Lending Act. Um, we I was at Housing Wire when uh, the TILA RESPA. Um, TRID, as it's known, uh, when those things were amended and we had new um, disclosures that had to be sent by uh, lenders to consumers. And it was a huge deal to get all those things done. So, But I haven't seen a lot of things happen. And this is actually a really interesting case because of the timeline. So walk us through why the CFPB came in um, in this case.
2: Yeah. So uh, originating in Maine, uh, there was a couple in around 2008 that took out uh, a mortgage in order to purchase land for the construction of a new home. They sold that home in 2014, but the sale proceeds were not enough to cover the outstanding debt because the home lost uh, value during the 2008 financial crisis. So to try and cover that debt, the couple took out a new loan, made regular payments for Uh, just about four years, but then at the end of the loan's term, the couple was unable to make uh, the balloon payment that was due. So when they failed to pay the whole amount, the bank sued. The couple tried to present evidence that the bank hadn't provided them with disclosures that were required under TILA and determined that they were not able to repay the loan. But the bank has argued that because the loan documents stated that the loan had a commercial purpose, TILA does not apply. So uh, state agencies, including uh, the Bureau of Financial Institutions and Bureau of Consumer Credit Protection in the state of Maine, filed the suit on behalf of the couple. The CFPB filed an amicus brief in uh, Maine Supreme Judicial Court uh, in support of, uh, of the state agencies. And uh, the, the Bureau has a very firm belief that why the consumer borrowed the money. In, in fact, here, the, the, the actual statement. Why, quote, "why the consumer borrowed the money not the label that the com- company sticks on the loan determines whether the loan is covered by the law lenders can't escape coverage under TILA by labeling their loans as commercial as many courts have held and as the law clearly states the borrower's purpose for taking out the loan the loan determines whether the law applies" end quote. and <clears throat> in the amicus brief the uh, CFPB also cited a 1973 Supreme Court case That noted that Tila's language, quote, evinces the awareness of Congress that some creditors would attempt to characterize their transactions so as to fall one step outside whatever boundary Congress attempted to establish. So the Bureau is saying uh, this falls well outside what the intent of the law uh, was when Congress actually deliberated it and passed it before it went to the president's desk. Uh, to, to be codified into law. So this is, I think it goes back to a lot of activity that we've seen from the CFPB pretty recently in uh, aiming to hold lenders accountable who, who might try to contend that there are components of lending laws that do not apply in specific circumstances. We'll have to see how things play out ultimately. But the fact that the the CFPB is making such a public showing of their support for the main case, I think is pretty telling, especially considering a lot of the recent actions they've undertaken over the past several months.
0: Now, I, I agree with you that this is definitely in line with the other things they're doing, which is really always putting lenders on notice that you cannot... Uh, not just lenders, but in our case lenders on uh, notice that you know you have to go with the spirit as well as the letter of the law. and and they say in this case that the letter of the law would require it anyway. But if you think about the spirit of the law, definitely, and um, I, I do think that you know it's putting lenders on notice to really follow up with that. I think it's interesting because when I first read this, um, case I was like 2008 we're talking about 2008 but really it's about a 2014 loan and then it was four years before that loan even you know even they had trouble with it so because um, at first I was like clearly we are still not you know litigating 2008 loans <laughs> but um, in this case it's just sort of an, uh, an added one there on 2014 and um, you know really makes the case that you know one of the reasons we have such low uh, foreclosure rates and, and just low problems in the mortgage in- industry now is that you have so many more 30 year fixed and you don't have so many of these arm products being sold. Um, you know the majority of loans are just very vanilla, safe, easy you know I mean these are these are not exotic loans and I'm not saying this loan was exotic but it's not a 30 year fixed.
2: Right. And I mean, we've seen over the past several months, you know, the CFPB has publicly declared that they're going after junk fees that are charged by mortgage servicers, so called junk fees. But um, CFPB and also the Department of Justice came out, I believe it was in March, that says that lenders are liable for discrimination that arises from appraisals. Uh, and we've seen, you know, the CFPB launching inquiries into data brokerage practices. Uh, uh, they issued a final rule on small business lendings. Uh, they outlined abusive conduct standards in in different financial markets. They're going after uh, lenders they believe have exhibited signs of redlining. Um, and throughout all of this, too, there is sort of a question and cloud hanging over the CFPB since. Uh, they're going to be deciding or this, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be deciding yet again the constitutionality of the agency in the next term. They're going to start hearing uh, oral arguments on that starting in October which is less than three months away. I think October 3rd is the date that I saw. So, uh, you know, it's a it's a very active time in terms of the CFPB and the mortgage industry. They're also uh, taking aim at, at zombie mortgages. Uh, they propose rules to bolster PACE loan borrower protections. Uh, All the while, there's this very sort of pugilistic relationship now between the CFPB and particularly the House of Representatives. We've seen uh, the director of the CFPB, Rohit Chopra, sort of on the hot seat uh, at at hearings of like the House Financial Services Committee, for instance, where uh, lawmakers there are taking aim at a lot of the more active regulatory posture and enforcement posture that the CFPB has undertaken. So. They don't seem to be backing down, even though there's this existential question that is hanging over the CFPB now. So, we're probably not going to hear anything about the constitutional question being resolved until sometime next year. I would imagine maybe early to mid next year. But either way, it does not seem like the CFPB is slowing down at all.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this was an agency that was pretty quiet in, um, you know, 20, under the last administration. Um, they, you know, didn't didn't take a lot of action, um, and they potentially lost some people who had, you know, um, joined that agency with a particular mission in mind. I mean, it was it's a it's a fairly young federal agency, uh, came out of born out of the financial crisis and was really Elizabeth Warren's brainchild, um, and attracted some of the best and brightest uh, people wanted to go in government and really address some of those pain points. After the financial crisis and was very aggressive, um, you know, against mortgage lenders and servicers for most of its existence. Then it went quiet for a few years and it has definitely come roaring back. So, this is one of those agencies that, you know, lenders keep a close eye on and we keep a close eye on for them because it has such a direct um, impact on them and on servicers.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I try to check in on what they're doing every day. And I usually find something so that I think that says something, uh, considering, considering their posture, at the very least, you know, they're, they're not backing down, even in spite of these other challenges to their authority, and even in some cases, their legitimacy. Um, But if recent actions are any indication, I mean, they also issued a report pretty recently about its anti-redlining and and anti-discrimination efforts over the past year. Uh, So, you know, we'll just have to see how things continue to progress going into 2024.
0: I think the thing about them that's so unique is they have consumers in their name, and that's really their focus. So before the CFPB, it was really about like, does, you know, does this transaction or is this person, you know, you're looking at it like... Um, how it affected the transaction. Here, it's like, how is it affecting the consumer? And if you're on the wrong side of that, the CFPB is always going to find for the consumer. Um, they, they really have that as their mission. So yeah, it'll be interesting. We're very glad that you're keeping an eye on it, Chris, because this is uh, important stuff coming out of there. So uh, thanks for covering these stories and also being on today.
2: Of course. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. Always appreciate it.